Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, I speak with Abhishek Chatterjee, founder and CEO of Tukitaki, a regtech startup that is focused on delivering a full suite of machine learning-based compliance solutions to banks and fintechs who are vulnerable to financial crime and increasingly subject to strict compliance regulation. Abhishek talks about the fact that only 1% of laundered money is recovered every year, how Tukitaki's culture is rooted in their purpose of fighting financial crime, and the differences between Western and emerging market regtech. Abhishek started Tukitaki in 2014 and now has offices in Singapore, India, the UK, and the US. You can learn more about them by visiting tukitaki.ai. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Abhishek, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Amrita, and I really look forward to this conversation. Awesome. Um, so Abhishek, I want to start talking about your early career. I think you actually started your career as a software engineer and then made the, made the switch to banking. How exactly did that happen? It's, 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 a, it's a great question starter. Um, so my background was applied math from USC. I was briefly in double-click Google engineering in New York. And then uh, JP Morgan offered me a job in their prop desk in 2008, nine. can you imagine, right? I wasn't sure what I was getting into. Uh, once I joined, I realized it was not the best time to join a prop desk or a bank. Um, but um, fortunately for me, a lot of the work that I had done was really appreciated by the bank. Um, and I was sort of retained by uh, the bank to move to uh, their interested swap desk side, which is more of the, the trading side of the world. I was part of the interested swap desk algo trading which means that a lot of the models I wrote really helped bank hedge a lot of the LIBOR risk that they were getting. So I was uh, deep into really understanding of, you know, interest rates and LIBOR rates and how do you sort of hedge instruments and stuff like that. I did that from 2010 to 2013. And then at, at some point in my career sort of uh, decided that I want to do something beyond banking that I was doing. And I had a call that I need to do something more entrepreneurial, but I wasn't very sure what to do. Um, and one of my colleagues in the desk uh, sort of inspired me. He left two years back and started a very successful company now. And he was, his, he was the founder. 
uh, he grew the company and now they're going IPO. And I was quite inspired by that. And at that point of time in 2013, the option was, do I sort of go to business school? Do I sort of start my own company? Uh, or I just continue what I'm doing there because I was fairly successful. Um, and uh, looking at this one of my colleague, right, it was very clear that uh, entrepreneurial is far more satisfying in terms of the work that you do. Not only you have an impact on yourself, but you're impacting society in your own way. And that was kind of really a defining moment for me that uh, what do I, how do I see myself 10 years from now or 20 years from now? Do I see myself successful in, in, in doing exactly my role or do I see myself successful in sort of contributing to making the society much more fuller in own my way? And the choice was very simple. I decided to take on this jump. It was a difficult journey because I was leaving a job that I was fairly successful and I was starting something which I didn't know much about, right? I, and the other option was, okay, if I go to business school, should I, you know, go to business school, learn business and then go. But the point was that, hey, if I go to business school, probably I'll have uh, a student loan or something and probably I'll come back to the same job. So the choice was very clear. This is the time. And I took the plunge. And uh, I decided to sort of uh, come back to Asia. So I left New York in 2013, 14. Um, in, in, in the side, I was talking to a lot of people, trying to figure out what's the right choice. Um, end of 2014, 15, when I decided, so officially Tukitaki was set up. So I spent one, one and a half years sort of on my own, speaking to people, understanding what I need to do. But that's my journey. So at one point of time, the choice was, how do I see myself 15, 20 years from now? And am I doing, what does success mean to me? Is it just being successful from a financial point of view or being successful from a more like contributing to the world and society? And the choice was very clear that I really wanted to contribute back. Uh, and that's the jump. Yeah, wow, Abhishek, that um, is really inspiring, especially as someone who went to business school, uh, mostly because I was confused and wasn't sure what I was gonna do next. I'm super inspired, uh, you know, hearing how you decided to start Tukitaki. I also wanna ask about like, you know, the, the issue you're focusing on, RegTech compliance. How did you realize that this was a major issue that you wanted to focus on? What are some of the real financial crimes? Like what are some of the impacts of that um, maybe just for the audience who may not be as, as familiar with some of like the real impact that, that this can have. Right. So financial crime essentially says that anything that covers under what they call as a predicate offense is under financial crime, which basically means it starts with money laundering, tax evasion, human trafficking, um, drug trafficking, anything that relates to a predicate offense comes under the purview of financial crime. So just to give you some context, $2 trillion is laundered every year and less than 1% is actually recovered, which means that less than $5 billion is recovered of the $2 trillion. You name any of our societal evils, uh, starting from human trafficking, slavery, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, all under the purview of financial crime. So uh, it's not just a financial impact, but it impacts society as a whole, right? So uh, when we wanted to look at compliance, for me, one of the areas in compliance and, and risk was sort of looking at financial crime as a whole, because I felt that that is an area that has the impact to society in such massive ways 
and it's not very common people don't know about it but imagine right um starting from uh, you know sort of child trafficking that happens or starting from drug trafficking that happens just to give you make it more tangible uh, one of the top banks in australia uh, recently was fined close to a billion dollar and what they were meaning what they had missed out was uh, somebody who was enabling child pornography was using their payment gateways to sort of transfer money between australia and one of the countries in southeast asia uh, so if my thought process was that if i wanted to sort of leave my job uh, from this bank i wanted to make an impact to society and financial crime which has such a devastating impact to society and if there is any way my software can make an impact or even a small dent and make this society a better place i felt that i in my way i was contributing uh, to this world uh, which i wouldn't have done working in any other place so for me it was very personal and financial crime and being able to help and make this society a much more better place was something that i was really really interested and keen yeah yeah that's great abhishek i think um so many people think about compliance is potentially a very dry topic and and there's a reason right why there are so many rules and strict uh regulations uh in the compliance space that banks and fintechs have to follow but it's really to prevent a lot of these you know societal harms that you're talking about and it's again really inspiring that this, this is the issue that you wanted to use uh your time to focus on so with that let's turn our attention to tukitaki that's really where the magic happens um, before we get into the workings of Tukitaki, though, I have to ask about the name because Tukitaki is so fun to say. I just want to say it over and over again. <laughs> Can you tell us about where it, where it came from and um, how that fits into the broader mission? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's a great conversation starter. Like everywhere I go, I start with Tukitaki and everybody wants the name because um, people have so much different connotation on the name. Like some say Japanese, some say Spanish, you know. Uh, so the name um, belongs the roots belongs to the place that i come from india it's a place called uh, calcutta um, i speak a language called as bengali and tukitaki in bengali sort of means hide and seek so essentially we're seeking out information hidden in noise and data uh, financial crime it's like you know seeking those small things out in this large data sets that you don't really know about but being able to figure that out is the name and is what the mission and vision of Tukitaki. So the name really means, it's not a random name. It, it is very personal to the company and the mission that we follow, which is figuring out and digging out those patterns hidden in noise and data. I love that. I love that. Uh, and it is a really fitting name for the work that you'll do. So let's talk more about Tukitaki and some of the different product that, that you offer. I was clicking around the Tukitaki website earlier and saw a lot of letters. I saw AMLS, RS, DSS, and a few others. Can you help us understand this alphabet soup? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I think fundamentally, right? Uh, as I said, you know, when I came back, I wanted to build a, a compliance platform as a service, similar to a banking as a service. And the first product that we chose was AML uh, because that was very personal to us. Uh, because we really wanted to make an impact to society. So what AMLS means is, you know, anti-my laundering suite. 
and that's why AMLS. So essentially, the suite of tools to prevent money laundering and can be deployed across fintechs and banks. Now, why is that important? Because um, these days with the new regulatory regime that is coming up, it's not that only banks have to follow those regulations. The non-banking segment also needs to cater to AML needs because with the growth of fintechs and payments, um, money laundering is not only limited to banks and regulators do understand that. And I don't know if you know the recent events like Binance is sort of stopped in um, Singapore, right? N26, which is a new bank in UK is getting an AML fine. Robinhood got AML fine because this is a large area that uh, governments understand if it's not controlled in the fintech space, it's going to be a big thing, meaning it's going to affect the society as a whole. So what AMLS or anti-money laundering suite of Tukitaki does, it provides what we call as an operating system for fintechs and in banks to cover end-to-end AML need, which starts from really screening customers who are part of the sanction list, uh, drug traffickers, human traffickers who are part of the government list. And you need to sort of screen your customers of not allowing them in your bank or institution to really understand if you're using your institution to launder money. And then finally, sort of risk scoring the customers based on their AML risk, right? So this provides an end-to-end suite, and that's what AML is all about. Now, our broader vision is to create an entire compliance suite. So we wanted to sort of extend beyond AML as well. So one of the big areas of focus for AML uh, for compliance and risk is regulatory reporting and reconciliation. So RS is reconciliation suite, which is a second group of products that we want to launch and sort of put into the market and say that, hey, uh, we are true to the vision where we have a very successful AML product. And now we are launching the second product to enable an end-to-end compliance process. And that's what RS is all about. And then the underlying platform, which sort of supports all these compliance solutions is our core data science studio. Think of it as a uh, underlying engine which powers these applications, which is AML and reconciliation. And that's what DSS is all about. So we started with the underlying engine and then build AML to support the core vision of helping the society to be a better and a safer place, and then sort of move towards the next sort of solutions in reconciliation and regulatory reporting so that fintech and banks can have an end-to-end solution for all their compliance needs. That's how we started and started to add more apps along the way. And I assume all of these are SaaS products, right? You're offering these to enterprises, banks, and fintechs. Yes. So, you know, we are very flexible in deployment. Um, We offer to both fintechs and banks. Uh, There's certain banks who want it on-prem. So there's on-prem solution, certain banks who wants it in cloud and SaaS, we offer that as well. So we are very flexible in sort of the deployment, which has allowed our AML solution to sort of so rapidly grow because of the flexibility in which you can deploy the solution and really make an impact, which essentially helps you manage your AML risk and then essentially helps you in not getting fines or not being in the news, right? which is the, the key message that you want to be. You know, the recent story, I don't know if you know, right? You know, the NV trader 
which was recently a lot in news that there was this $1.8 billion, which was a, sort of this scam that happened uh, recently, which was in news uh, where certain banks sort of uh, uh, removed or sort of offsetted those accounts, but certain banks still kept that person in their accounts, right? Because they couldn't figure out. So that is one such example where banks which have our solutions are able to detect them better than others. Got it. But obviously paying for compliance solutions is very costly, uh, I'm sure, for the banks and fintechs. What do you say to a bank or a fintech CEO who says that they're spending too much money on compliance? <laughs> um, there are two things, right? One is um, banks are uh, fintechs definitely paying a lot of money. But then with the recent news that are coming up, you know, N26, Binance, they're obviously not doing all the things that they need to do, right? Uh, so there is a gap between what they're paying and why they are in the news. Um, so what we say is that, you know, you need to sort of improve the effectiveness of your AML process and then sort of reduce the cost that you're paying for whatever you're trying to do, right? So you need to be more efficient. So pitch is very simple, right? Uh, with this AML suite, the end-to-end -end suite, on one side, you, you're going to improve the effectiveness of your product. And on the other side, you're going to make it more efficient so that you reduce the cost. And that's what Tukitaki's message is. You improve effectiveness and you improve efficiency. And that's the only way you're going to manage cost, but not at the cost of you know, reducing risk, right? That's, that's what we offer. Got it. Got it. And I guess it makes it really tangible again when you say, well, do you want to be like some of these companies that have found themselves on the front page for, you know, failing to do the things that that you're offering? So it's a very good, very good nudge uh, in the right direction. We don't have to give examples. You know, I guess when we speak to our clients, they already know about it because I'm sure they're worried about it. Right. So that itself is a good pitch for us in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So one other thing, Abhishek, is that I wanted to ask about Tukitaki's culture uh, because it seems like Tukitaki takes culture and talent very seriously. Um, how do you define the culture of the company and how do you attract talent, especially when you may be competing against uh, big banks, big tech, and maybe even other fintechs? Right, I think, um, you know, like culture is not about what you write on the walls. Culture is what you practice, right? And that's very personal to all of the team members in Tukitaki. Um, key things sort of define Tukitaki is number one, uh, because we are solving such a humane problem, right? It's it's not like we are building something to improve, you know, cost or you know, improve efficiency, right? That's definitely the output, but at the end of the day when our tool detects certain things, a money launderer or a drug trafficker is actually getting caught by the regulators and the law enforcements, right? So people in Tukitaki are very personal about the cause of why they're doing it, right? Um, recently, you know, we on, you know, you know, we onboarded somebody as one of our you know, advisors. Uh, she is herself was a human traffic victim, right? Wow. Um, who talked about how she was trafficked from her country. And then uh, even though she was trafficked, you know, you know, she couldn't speak out, right? And later on she became a, 
uh, expert and she's a advisor in lot many places right and so we take pride and our team members take pride in what we are doing that's i think is fundamentally the culture right the culture is we value the work that we do and we are very passionate about it which then translates to real actions not like culture on the wall so what does it translate to number 1 innovation right uh, because the bad guys this meaning 2 trillion dollar is getting laundered which basically means that they have lot more money than we have we are series a funded company right so they are always doing things that we wouldn't be able to do right so people are passionate and people are innovative to stop those so innovation is deep ingrained we always solve problems that we don't know because we don't know the other side what new ways of laundering they're coming out with right so that's the first one we are like proud of what we do and we are super innovative because by default we know the other guy has much more resource than what we do that's one number two which is important to 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 our culture is you know we believe in the customers because we know that our customers are using our tool to stop something that's going to impact at least one human being right so if we ship a bad tool if it misses out something or if the customer doesn't detect it's not about just the fine but at the end of the day a human trafficker will traffic a girl or 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 a boy whatever that might be which will impact somebody right so being able to be customer first which has a direct impact is very personal to us right so number so as to just sum it up right human impact innovation customer first and the last one what we call as grit which means that the lot many times we will miss out on the cases because we don't know yet right but just saying that hey we missed out what do we do we just say hey fine we missed out let's get the data let's again you know get back up and rebuild and let's sort of fight that together right so grit is what defines us so client first innovation grit is what defines us and all of them gets connected to the purpose of making this world a better place and even being able to stop one person is very personal to us and that's how the culture is all about to get up yeah wow that's really powerful abhishek and it seems like you know some companies they have a mission or a purpose that you know they might put it on a nice poster in the office but it really sounds like the tuki taki team that's really what drives them especially to have people on the team who have been victim to some of these things themselves uh what an incredible way for them to kind of pay it forward and you know make an impact in this space very inspiring maybe let's zoom out a little bit and spend some time talking more broadly about financial crime and reg tech reg tech is is so important and i think i've heard about a lot of it i've heard a lot more of it in in the west um but in emerging markets it still feels like a very new ish concept what are some of the risks specifically in some of these places um i mean obviously we're sitting in singapore we're close to lots of markets where there are different kinds of risks so maybe let's do a little compare contrast like how are emerging markets different from more developed markets especially when it comes to reg tech right so i think uh, i'll take a step back in um uh, reg tech is essentially you know the technology that helps in managing the regulatory risks right now what happens is in 
developed markets, the regulatory risks and the policies are well defined, right? So that basically means that financial institutions, which has to cater to those markets, know exactly what to do, which makes the problem easier to solve because you, you have guidelines and you can follow those guidelines. Now, it also makes to some extent difficult because now you have guidelines and you have to sort of invest in them, right? And that's why the cost starts increasing. And, and, that, and that's a question that you said, they're spending so much money, how do they get back, right? So there is a different level of problem, but the ambiguity in what needs to be solved in form of regulatory risk and policies are, are fairly clear. But when you look at emerging markets, the regulatory risk and policies are very, very ambiguous, right? You don't really know. A um, lot of these countries are bringing those risks now uh, or policies now uh, to make sure that they cater to the global regulations, right? For instance, FATF, uh, which is a financial crime task force uh, sort of measures how certain countries following AML rules and policies. Of course, you know, countries which are developed are all, you know, already following them, but the challenge is countries which are emerging, which do not follow them. Right. Now, how do you bring them into the overall sort of the, the flow so that they can answer those, you know, so, so, so that they can bring them under those guidelines. And that's a big challenge. So rectech companies, which are starting in those emerging economies, don't really know what they need to build, right? Because they don't have that clarity. So a lot of the rectech companies, which are starting up uh, crowns up from these emerging economies, to, in my mind, are quite innovative because you know it's it's an open slate for them, right? So they're actually talking to regulators, talking to FATF, talking to so many people to really understand what will those regulations come in the next two years, so that they build it now and they can cater to the market. It's it's a completely different problem to solve than a than a developed market where the problem is, hey, I know what I need to buy. Do you already have it or not, right? So I think uh, the companies which are coming up in this region have to spend a lot more time understanding the local laws, regulations, global laws and regulations, and sort of match them together and take a futuristic view that, hey, one year from now, 18 months from now, or 24 months from now, what needs to be done? It's, it's, it's a difficult problem to solve, right? Uh, and that's what, uh, what we are seeing now, if you look at the amount of funding that's happening in the industry, uh, is a good sort of uh, indicator that so much funding is happening because these companies have done that work and they they have proof points to show, and VCs are sort of betting on them. Uh, similarly, on the developed market where there is already known regulations, a um, lot of existing companies which are fairly successful sort of taking those known regulations, adding them in their product portfolio and sort of growing. So you would see more established companies being successful in those regions. And then over here, you will see more like smart, innovative companies really coming up fast, which are growing here. And that's how the ecosystem will sort of support till it comes to an equilibrium where all of them will have a fair place to play. And that's how I look at the growth in this industry.
Got it. Got it. And I mean, I should have asked this before, but what is uh, Tuki Taki's footprint? How many, which markets are you, are you serving today? Um, we primarily have a focus on the Asian market, but then one of our biggest focus now is the European and the Americas market, which is where we are moving towards this year and, and coming years. But historically, we have been very strong in the Asian market. Got it. So you're actually at this really interesting uh, vantage point where you can see what's going on in both the emerging markets and the developed markets and probably get the best of both, which is very exciting. Hopefully we get the best of both. <laughs> Time will tell. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm super excited to see how it grows. I also want to talk about the different types of institutions. Uh, you mentioned that you have customers that are banks, you have customers that are fintechs. Are the risks that those two types of organizations face pretty similar or are they quite different? What we see here is that the, the fintechs generally has been catering to a, a different segment of the market or a very specific segment of the market, which means that they're focused on certain specific segments of the market that they cater to, 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 to make it more real. Suppose you have uh, fintech solutions, which are focused on merchant solutions, right? Uh, payment gateways, which are focused on merchant solutions. So when they, are, when they are managing their regulatory risk or AML risk, they're very focused on merchant solutions, right? And they want to make sure that they are catering to all the regulatory laws around them. But now when you move to a full scale bank, right? Where they have retail, wholesale, capital markets, it's the entire realm of products, right? Uh, where any of their accounts or customers can use any of the products, which means that the way they need to manage risk, which is interaction of the customers to the products or other customers is really different from fintechs who are just looking at merchant solutions, right? So the way I look at things between large institutions and fintechs is fintechs, uh, they are very focused. They double down on that specific segment and the risk that they carry is in those segments. So if they can sort of create an ecosystem to manage that risk for that segment, they're fairly successful in that. And that's why they're growing fast with very strong risk mitigation policies. But for financial institutions like banks, which have so many products, so different type of customers, that the risk that they have to manage is far larger than any specific segment that they look at. So I think um, they're quite different because of the type of products and, and the business that they manage, uh, which is something that I'm sure both the institutions sort of understand. And then that's why they sort of structure their compliance risk teams in that fashion to cater to one being very specific and one being so generic in nature. Yeah, I guess very different. Um in so many ways, but also from a compliance and risk perspective. Um, you know, I'm thinking about what you said earlier, uh, you know, about banks uh, and fintechs, you know, why, why a, a CEO would, would want to pay for these services. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the word reg tech, the term reg tech is thrown around quite a lot. Um, how do we really know what good reg tech is? If you are one of those bank CEOs, how do you know this is good or bad, or this is going to get you halfway uh, to eliminating risk or the full way? Have you noticed any patterns among companies who succeed in this space versus those who don't? 
Absolutely. I think the patterns have uh, started to emerge now because as I said, right, uh, in the in the emerging market, nothing is set to stone, right? You sort of take a bet. In, in, in developed markets, everything is around more um, sort of policy driven and then there are companies, right? What we have started seeing is that companies which sort of tackle a specific problem and offer solutions to a specific problem, that's where the companies start to see more value because when you are very vertical or product specific, uh, and when you go and pitch to a bank, you can clearly articulate your value and not product features. Because when fin fin fintechs or banks buy your product, they're not buying product features. They're buying uh, what value they can, they can get to grow their business or, or sort of reduce their risk, right? So if you have a, a very specific product which can say, hey, I'm going to help you in do A, B, and C, which is either going to reduce your risk or improve your top line, then the value is very clear. But then if I go to a bank CEO or a FinTech CEO and say, I can do everything you choose, then, okay, there are like hundred companies who can say I can do everything. And even my internal engineering team or product team can say I can do everything, right? So then it becomes very difficult. So our positioning as Tukitaki has always been more like what would bring value to our customers and not product features. So the pattern that I see emerging is companies which are more value driven to their customers, very focused, can define the value that they're bringing, have, are able to see more success than generic platforms, uh, which tend to sort of more confuse the buyers than anything else, because mm -hmm. yeah. there's so many options, right? That's, that's how I see it. I'm not saying that, you know, generic platforms are not successful. There are enough successful companies, but uh, what we have seen is, you know, your sort of success matrices sort of really grow if you are able to really bring value quickly and that you can only do when you have a very specific solution, which you can articulate well. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what about the regulator perspective? Uh, you know, how do they see reg tech adoption by the industry? And is this working well in some markets versus others? Who's doing this? Which regulators are doing well versus which ones, um, you know, have a ways to go? You're putting me in spot. I can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I think most of the regulators are doing well. Um, you know, we we recently participated in a FATF roundtable conference where uh, most of the global regulators were present, and everybody had one side that, hey, we want to bring uh, uh, innovative fintechs into the space, and we want to help banks bring them or fintechs bring them. But when we talk to the banks, they say, hey, the regulators are telling us to bring those fintechs, but if there is a fine, they don't leave us, right? They still find us, so so we don't know what that means for us, right? So it's a dichotomy in that sense. Uh, but I think few regulators are extremely uh, supportive of fintech, right? For example, MAS has a lot of programs where they have grants where they say, hey, if you bring a fintech, you have like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, or three up to four hundred thousand, I guess, uh, that they will sponsor. So certain regulators are much more. Uh, action oriented like MAS where they clearly say that if you bring those 
uh, you will get some grants to bring them, right? Certain regulators uh, do a lot of uh, these programs like hackathons and sprints where the regulators participate. They take the onus to bring the industry and then they choose sort of fintechs to come in like FCA does sprints. I think it's a great initiative. And then there is like, uh, of course, um, regulators who, who are starting to open up. One such program is done by FinCEN, which is the US regulator. We participated in that FinCEN innovation program where they listen to the innovation that you're bringing in. So I think in general, we see a lot of the regulators coming up to the program. Uh, certain regulators have taken concrete steps. Certain ones are taking, uh, but I think we need to do more because when we talk to the industry, they're still worried that if I get fined saying that I'm using a fintech, regulators are not going to give me a brownie point, right? So, so that's a balance that we need to sort of work through. Definitely a diversity of regulators and perspectives uh, across the globe, but definitely some of the ones you mentioned, obviously MAS, FCA in, in the UK, FinCEN in the US, some of the most proactive that I've seen as well. How do you think, maybe particularly for, for these regulators that are doing a really good job, like what's their vision for RegTech? So I'll take a step back, right? So as I said, right, um, in certain countries, um, regulations are well-defined, right? In Singapore, AML regulations are very well-defined, caters to FATF policies and guidelines. Certain countries are trying to sort of get to there, right? And the way regulators behave is sort of based on where they stand with the global laws and norms. So just to make it more real, right? Um, in the US, uh, we, alre we already have a concept called as 314B where sharing of information uh, on specific AML events is already allowed. So any bank can ask for certain information and any bank can voluntarily provide now that laws and regulation isn't there in other countries like Singapore recently, I don't know if you know, right? I think a week back recently launched a information sharing process for AML. Um, I think six banks or seven banks are coming together in Singapore to do that. So Singapore is bringing those laws and regulations, right? So the, the way, and once they sort of bring those laws and regulations, they can become more innovative, more aggressive in sort of, pushing institutions to follow them. But countries which don't have them, you can't have much option because the laws and regulations are not there. So I think the way uh, regulators behave, number one is on the global nature of FATF and UN bodies, how they are sort of percolating it. Because at the end of the day, if you're not meeting those stand, uh, standards, you probably will have a sanction and fine which will bring them to a more stricter action. That's one. Number two, um, no country at this point wants their name that, okay, this is a country which doesn't have laws and regulations because that is just a bad PR for the country. So their regulator starts to act. And then countries which already have those laws and regulations, they behave in a certain way where they are actively promoting innovation because they know the laws and laws and regulations exist. So I think uh, in my mind to sum it up, the way where countries are building those laws and regulations, they need help 
in accelerating that process and in countries which already have them they need acceleration in implementing them and that's how i have seen global regulatory bodies act the acceleration is either in implementation or bringing them in practice uh, that's how they behave it's better to find the benchmark and comply rather than get in trouble uh, by those same folks makes a lot of sense let's um i'm not sure if this is going to get you out of the hot seat but i want to ask about a different stakeholder uh-huh. the you know investors investors are another group that touch this space and tukitaki has been around since 2013 which i think is very early days for regtech um, and you've raised multiple rounds of funding since then. So how have you actually seen investors' attitudes towards RegTech change over that time? Um, just to um, clarify one point, meaning I started Tukitaki, but officially Tukitaki was set up in November 2014. So in, in our first official seed round was end of 15. Mm-hmm. So I came back in 13. So I say that it started in 13, but mm-hmm. actually it was started in uh, end of 1415. Yeah. Uh, I I took two years to sort of really understand what the industry is. But I would say that in in 13, 14, when I came back from the US, uh, RegTech was fairly new, right? Um, People still struggle to understand, is this a large business? Because um, um, regulators at that time, enforcement was quite low, I might say. Like, if you look at the rise of AML fines that has happened over period. In 2020, it was 16 billion. In 19, it was 8 billion. In uh, 18, it was uh, 4 billion. And 14 or 15, it was less than a billion. So it was not a priority also. Right? Now, as uh, you know, the fintech started to grow, cross-border communication started to grow more cross-border payments started to happen more. Um, Digital payments started to happen more. And then regulators started to realize that, hey, uh, you know, this sort of activity is happening and it's happening in my country. So for instance, in Australia, a human trafficking event was happening, uh, but from a country in Southeast Asia, right? So because you know because you know the laws and regulations in australia prevented they started taking action so that means that the country in southeast asia also started getting noticed because from there the flow started to happen so cross-border payment fintech payment digital payments the world became more sort of a flat place with advent of fintechs and payments which was not there before maybe 14 15. and then the fine started to happen uh, one big fine was one MDB case, right? Uh, which was all over the world, right? And when these sort of, uh, you know, well-known cases started to come up, uh, then multiple regulators started to take notice. Uh, FATF started to take notice. Sanctions started to start to happen. And then it's a domino effect. When one happens, one sanction happens, everybody starts to take notice. And that's when the fine started to grow up. And literally in the journey of Tukitaki, we saw like no interest. I don't care. To If I don't have the tool tomorrow, I will get a billion dollar fine. Right? Wow. And we have seen that journey so clearly. And that is something that we really feel 
quite closely. And that's why we are so passionate about the work that we do because it's not just the fine, it's actual people uh, who is getting impacted and that's what defines the culture as well. So we have seen that growth of uh, regulators and countries taking action uh, and moving from not banks, but also covering the non-banking fintech segment. Um, and it's very apparent and very clear. And that's what we have seen over the last five years. And then when that happens, VCs also start to take notice. And then the industry starts to grow because people realize that it's a large market. Like, you know, financial crime is almost a $30 billion uh, software buying market. And it's not a winner-take-all market. Uh, there could be like, you know, almost... 100 to 500 million revenue generating or a billion dollar revenue generating company. And there could be 30 odd companies like that, right? Yeah. So it's a large uh, market and it's not a winner take all market. And we believe that's what sort of interested the VC segment as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And hope that means there'll be more investment, more startups uh, like Tuki Taki, <laughs> more competition for you. <laughs> Um, but yeah, as you said, it's a big enough, it's a big enough market. Um, and the, the impacts are also so important that, to address that honestly, the more attention on, on reg tech and fixing these societal issues, the better. I wish we have a, only a few more minutes chatted for a long time. Um, but maybe one last question spent having spent all this time in reg tech and thinking about the future of reg tech and compliance. What excites you the most and what scares you the most? What excites me the most is that every day I come in, not just me, everybody in Tukitaki is like, what we do every day, we are, even if we are able to save one human being from being human trafficked, one human being from not taking a drug, right, which is drug traffic, or one place where there is like a terrorist financing, that's excites us, right? Because we find purpose in what we do. Um, there are very few things that you do in the world that has that sense of purpose. And that's what we are excited all about. That at some corner in the world, hopefully, if somebody loses some money and we prevent that from losing, in indirect or direct, whatever that might be, that's impactful, right? So from our point of view, that excites me the most. Now, what you ask me, what worries me the most? If we don't detect anything and the, the bad guys are much more smarter than us and somebody tells you, hey, your stool missed. Yeah, that's really scary, right? You don't want to be in the newspaper that day in Tukitaki missed out. So that worries quite a bit for us because we don't want to be in the news with for a bad reason. Uh, but what really excites for us is the impact that we are bringing because um, that's fundamentally changing. Meaning we can truly say that we are making this world a better place. Uh, it's not like a theoretical exercise that, hey, I'm, I'm making this software and this makes a world a better place, right? You know, a lot of Silicon Valley companies say that. But we feel really passionate about it because we see the impact, right? Uh, a lot of the times when you hear the news that, hey, that scam has been stopped, this has been stopped, we can't say it. But we know that our tool paid a part, right? And that's superbly impactful. 
Yeah, you and Tukitaki are doing the good work. It's not just a theory of change, but there's real impact that is coming from the work that Tukitaki is doing. So thank you so much um, for sharing your story with us and for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Abhishek. Thank you very much, Amrita. Take care. And now a word from our sponsors. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels keynotes uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there thanks for tuning in to this episode of the green room with amrita veer listen to us on spotify apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates you can also visit amritavir.com to get more information join our mailing list or just reach out to us you can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com and follow our Instagram handle, Greenroom Fintech. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.